Every Monday to Friday, this is Peter Lewis's Money Talk. Money Talk! Good morning, this is Peter Lewis on Thursday the 23rd of November and let me be among the first to wish you Happy Thanksgiving Day and a warm welcome to Money Talk. This podcast is sponsored by Surfing Group, which is headquartered in Singapore and offers online financial services to 30 million customers across 10 countries. In today's business and finance headlines, ousted OpenAI chief Sam Altman is set to return to run the company under the supervision of a new board just days after he was fired. Mr. Altman said the firm would build on its strong partnership with Microsoft. On Wednesday, OpenAI said that it will partly reconstitute the board of directors that had dismissed him. Former Salesforce CEO Brett Taylor and former US Treasury Secretary Larry Summers will join current director Adam DeAngelo on the new board, OpenAI said. Country Garden and Sino Ocean Group have been included on China's draft list of 50 developers eligible for a range of financing support. Sifi Holdings, another builder that has missed debt payments, was also included on the so-called white list. Regulators are set to finalise the roster and distribute it to banks and other financial institutions within the next few days. Alibaba founder Jack Ma has halted plans to trim his stake in the company after the Chinese e-commerce giant suffered its biggest sell-off in more than a year last week. Alibaba disclosed last week that Jack Ma's family trust was set to sell 10 million Alibaba shares for about 840 million US dollars on November the 21st. However, Mr. Ma has not sold a single share in Alibaba as the stock price has not reached the level the billionaire was seeking, according to an internal memo from the company. Mr. Ma is confident in the company's future, the memo said. Singapore's GDP grew 1.1% year-on-year in the third quarter, beating advance estimates of 0.7% and higher than the half a percent growth seen in the second quarter. This was the 11th straight quarter of economic expansion and the strongest pace since the final quarter of 2022 amid further signs that the city-state's recovery is gaining momentum. On today's programme, I'm joined by Andrew Ferris, the CEO of Econosis Advisory, and Michelle Lamb, Greater China Economist at Societe Generale Corporate and Investment Banking. And in the second part of the show, I'm going to talk about tapping into a treasure of critical minerals that lie on the ocean floor that could help combat climate change with Gerard Barron, the CEO of The Metals Company. And if you want to get in touch, please go to my website, peterlewismoneytalk.substack.com. The November rally in US stocks continued on Wednesday, ahead of Thanksgiving Day, as Treasury yields briefly fell to their lowest level in two months. More than half of the stocks trading on the New York Stock Exchange were higher as the market rally broadened. The S&P 500 climbed 0.4% to 4,557. The Dow gained 185 points, or half a percent, to 35,273. The Nasdaq Composite advanced half a percent to 14,266. Small caps outperformed, with the Russell 2000 index rising 0.7%. The S&P Volatility Index, the VIX, tumbled almost 4% to 12.85. Shares of NVIDIA fell 2.5% after the chipmaker reported a tripling of revenues on Tuesday after the bell. The company posted fiscal third quarter adjusted earnings and revenue that beat expectations, but warned that export restrictions on China would weigh on its fiscal fourth quarter. Microsoft added 1.3% to close at a new all-time high, taking its market cap to 2.8 trillion US dollars after topping the 3 trillion dollar mark intraday. 
US Treasury yields rose on Wednesday following strong economic data and a rise in consumers' inflation expectations. The two-year Treasury yield rose three basis points to 4.9%. The 10-year yield ended the day two basis points higher at 4.42%. Oil prices fell sharply on Wednesday. That was after the OPEC Plus oil cartel announced it will postpone its planned meeting scheduled for Sunday to next week, which traders took as a sign the group is struggling to agree on further supply cuts. Brent crude oil fell nearly 5% at one stage before rebounding to settle 0.6% lower at $81.96 a barrel. The US dollar index rose a third of a percent to 103.89, rising for a second consecutive session, as strong economic data made it less likely the Fed will cut interest rates. The yen was the G10 underperformer versus the dollar, falling 0.8% to 149.5 yen per dollar. The offshore yuan rose initially after the PBOC set the currency fixing at the strongest level since June. Offshore yuan traded as high as 7.13 and a quarter renminbi on Wednesday morning, but then gave up its gains to end the day a third of a percent lower at 7.16 and a half renminbi per US dollar. On the mainland, the Shanghai Composite fell 0.8% to 3,044. In quiet trading ahead of US Thanksgiving Day, Hong Kong's Hang Seng Index ended the day unchanged at 17,735. The Hang Seng Tech Index fell 0.2%. Does look like though we're going to get quite a substantial fall in the Hang Seng at the open. Futures markets pointing to a drop of about 180 points. That's 1%. Looks like the index is going to start the day at around about 17,560. And you can get more details on the latest market movements in my daily newsletter at peterlewismoneytalk.substack.com. Every Monday to Friday, this is Peter Lewis's Money Talk. Peter Lewis's Money Talk. On this Thursday morning and on Thanksgiving Day, let's welcome our regular Thursday morning commentator, Andrew Ferris, who is the CEO of Econosis Advisory. Morning to you, Andrew. And also with us is Michelle Lam, who is Greater China Economist at Société Générale Corporate and Investment Banking. Morning to you, Michelle. Hey, good morning, Peter. Let's start by looking at the, uh, the property sector. Um, China Country Garden and Sino Ocean Group have been included on China's draft list of 50 developers, which is eligible for a range of financing support. SIFI Holdings, another builder that has missed debt payments, was also included on the so-called white list. Regulators are set to finalise the roster and distribute it to banks and other financial institutions within 10 day, within the next few days. And Chinese regulators are drafting this list of 50 developers, which are eligible for a whole range of financing, which is China's latest effort to try and put a floor under the property crisis. And in a meeting last Friday in Beijing of senior government and banking officials, regulators instructed state banks to ensure the amount of loans to private property developers at least match the sector-wide average. Um, Andrew, this is obviously the latest move to try and stabilise the property market. And it seems to be at last Beijing sort of acknowledging uh, that there are some quite big credit problems among these uh, these indebted property developers and they, they can't raise funds. But is this the right way to go and do it? Well, let's first understand quite what they're doing. They are not giving the money. Okay, they just produced a list of uh, 50 usual suspects and they pass it around to state banks and non-state banks, telling them, be nice to these guys. Hmm. Okay, they keep some kind of a ratio so that uh, the amount of money they will be receiving from you is not in excess of the nationwide average. So theoretically speaking, 
theoretically speaking, non-state banks may say, thank you very much, we received uh, your note, and uh, we'll see you sometime in the future, and do nothing about it. The state banks, it's a different proposition altogether, because, of course, that's the government. Mm -hmm. But even there, it's going to be a little bit difficult to actually tell individual banks how much to lend to individual companies, unless the state authorities decide to micromanage the portfolio structure of those banks. So on one hand, it's a good idea. On the second hand, and uh, uh, I'm sorry, uh, Peter, if you heard this, this joke again and again, you know, the Jerry Maguire film, mm -hmm. show me the money. Show me okay. the money. There is no money. There is no money on the table. Right. I mean, I'm not saying they're doing something bad or they're doing something uh, uh, somehow deviously behind the scenes. No, they're perfectly mm. saying to the banks, please support them. But, but is, no. it, is, it the, is it sort of twisting the arm of these banks, whether they're state-owned or otherwise, to basically make uneconomic loans? That's what they are. They're going to be uneconomic yeah. loans that you wouldn't normally make to these indebted developers. Is it really the right thing to do? or Is it going to solve the problem? Once again, how much? You know, the banks may turn around and say, yes, we received your note and actually we're giving them a 558,000 renminbi for each particular property sector. Thank you very much. Okay. The, in inverted commas, the punchy thing will be for the government to turn around and say, we have the list of the 50. Uh, we will ask them individually to come and be interviewed and then we'll decide how much we're going to give them on the spot mm. money actually on the table, okay? No, they, they kick the can down the road by passing it on the individual banks. Having said that, however, state banks is an altogether different proposition because that's a state government. Put it bluntly, that's the Communist Party asking them to give money, okay? But how much, how quickly, and to whom they're going to give, it's not indicated. Mm. Michelle, what do you think about this scheme? It's obviously the, the latest effort, isn't it, to try and do something about uh, the, the property sector. But do you think this is the right thing to do, in effect, twisting the arm of, of, of banks to go and make um, sort of what are, in effect, maybe uneconomic loans to, to these developers that you wouldn't normally want to go and lend to? Well, that's uh, <laughs> that's always the the, the method uh, the policymakers have been doing, right? I think it's kind of similar in uh, what we are seeing with the how they are doing with the debts uh, from the local governments. And I think for this announcement, uh, I mean, we've been here before, actually. Like remember last year, they rolled out this uh, sixteen-point measures mm. to try to ask the banks and uh, to to support more lending to these developers, but it has not really been uh, effective because I think simply uh, maybe there's not enough political pressure and I think this time given that the situation has been much worse and the uh, policymaker seems to now pay more attention to the poverty development so maybe the this time there's going to be more pressure applied to make sure that these banks are lending to these uh, developers but um I think, yeah, first of all, I agree very much with Angel, which is like the, the, the extent and to whom that these banks are, are lending to. I think that's very important. Um, because I think if you, if you look at the situation of some developers, right, it's, it's not like, uh, the, the banks could keep on lending some, somewhat more loans and then the whole, um, the whole debt situation can be resolved because for some of these, these developers, the debt is simply just too huge that, um, it is not a liquidity problem. It's actually a solvency problem. So I think in the end, uh, inevitably, you may even need some bite off of 
of these debts uh, by the bondholders, and uh, there will be some uh, debt burden to be to be borne by the other creditors. Um, so, so not just the banks. Uh, so, so, so that at the end of the day, it's a matter of how much the banks are willing to lend. And then, and I think eventually that also leads us to the to the next question, which is like, uh, are banks actually in, incentivized to make these loans? Um, maybe to some extent for the state banks because of political pressure, but for the non-state-owned banks, I don't think there will be a economic case to for, for them to do so. So I think it's going to still be quite difficult. And then the third point is um, then what's going to happen to those developers outside the white list? Um, does that mean that the banks will just, uh, yeah, there will be some, some problem. Like the banks will just but, like, isolate these banks and not give them lending at all. You, you, so does that mean they're going to um, go into bust? At a, at a quicker pace. So I think there's still questions to be answered. There's almost a case for saying, if, as a property developer, you don't want to be on this white list because it's rather a black mark against you, isn't it? You'd rather be off the white list. And if I was a bank, I'd probably sooner want to lend to some of the, the property developers that aren't on this white list. Yeah, but uh, in China, I think things work a bit different. Uh, probably, I think the banks will be more willing to to take risks if the if, if there's a like political guarantee that uh, the developers will survive eventually. Mm. Uh, Andrew, is is this reflecting just how bad the situation is getting for the property developers? Because it seems to be worsening, doesn't it? It's uh, if you look at the uh, investment in real estate, it fell even further last month, down nine point three percent. Existing home prices fell the most since two thousand and fourteen, and it now looks like the slide in prices is ex- extending. To, to tier one cities is it, is it are things worsening yeah. I, I agree you, you sort of you you look through the numbers and uh, they're becoming increasingly funereal although we haven't had yet any further like for example we had with uh, um, with some of the major companies already a default on particularly on US dollar denominated debt we haven't had yet yet another shock to the system. So I'm not quite sure what the government is trying to do here, rather than put its hand in its pocket mm. and give out some money. They will be doing it by raising more uh, sovereign loans to spend on infrastructure, which may benefit some of the development companies, only to the extent that some of them do not only build homes, but also build ports, railways, uh, airplane, sorry, uh, airports and, and hospitals. But that is several years down the line. Mm. I mean, this is, this is not going to help them anywhere near, even if there is a huge program, I don't know, let's, let's say expanding hospital buildings, triple them, okay, over the next five years. Well, over the next five years, these companies may benefit from that, but not right now, as far as their residential property portfolio is, 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 is concerned. Mm. Michelle, what, what's your sense? Are, are things getting worse in, in the property sector and hence it's dragging down the wider economy? If you look at the data that we've seen recently, it wasn't particularly good, was it? Yeah, this it's just no strong signs of recovery. I mean, actually, um, things seems to be stabilizing a bit in the top tier cities in October if you look at the forty, uh, the thirty major uh, property, uh, the property sales in thirty major cities, um, but uh, I think if you look at the national data, it doesn't really tell you the a better a, a good picture because I think um, 
the sales in the low tier cities actually keep falling. Um, and I think that's like much more challenging because of the uh, the, the vacancy rates higher and um, people simply not interested in buying the properties in the low tier sales mm-hmm. at all right now. And, um, and the easing measures in the top tier cities actually make people uh, shifting the, 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 the demand uh, from the low tier to the top tier city. So I think that we are in a situ- situation that overall, um, the the housing sales still uh, uh, are not really uh, on a on a stabilizing trend. Um, so I think perhaps the government uh, there's a chance that the government still needs to roll out more easing measures. For example, completely removing um, the purchase restrictions in the first tier cities, uh, more tax measures or like interest rate cuts to support the property sales. And and what do you make of the economy overall, Michelle, on the mainland? We've had a lot of data now, haven't we, in the last week or so, retail sales, industrial production, fixed assets, investment. Um, what, what's your sense of, of the economy? Do you think it's stabilising or, or, or what? So so in short, it is, it is stabilising, but it is stabilising at the at weak levels. Um, Regarding October, I think you saw somewhat stronger consumption momentum because of the National Day holiday. But if you look at the industrial and export pressure, uh, the, the the picture is is not recovering strongly. So kind of a sort of a, a pause after the rebound in September, and uh, and on the investment side of things. You would expect that uh, infrastructure investment will be doing a bit better, given that the local government has been accelerating the bond issuance, but we haven't really seen in the data yet. And the property is just, uh, as what I mentioned, is, is just continued to be, uh, uh, to be at uh, depressed levels. Mm. Andrew, what, what's your sense of, of the economy on the mainland from the data that we've had recently? Yeah, actually, even if one takes uh, illustrative data, and of course by necessity it is... Uh, is a sort of a chancy thing. You know, I'm looking at industrial output the last three months, 4.5, 4.5, 4.6, flat. Okay, then uh, I look at the fixed investment, again, the last three months, starting from October, 3.2, 3.1, 2.9, sort of down, but down at a very small pace. Inflation, uh, flat, uh, exports still shrinking, but uh, slightly better than you go to the real funeral <laughs> death wish kind of statistics and that is the price in 40 major and minor cities of property and that has been going down shrinking for 19 19th read my lips months so i look at it and i will say the majority of the indexes tell me of a flat economy not a flat economy that's about proverbially to fall off a cliff far from it okay the the third quarter gdp growth was 4.9 percent and my standing joke is uh, 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 Z tells Biden, look, what if I offer you an economy which is growing at about 5% with zero inflation? Biden said, please, where do I sign? Okay, so, uh, you know, the Chinese economy is, uh, is, uh, is flat rather than, uh, rather than uh, uh, let's say, palpitating or standing at, at the edge of a cliff. It isn't, but it's not exciting. Mm. Okay, and there are no signs of the things beginning to accelerate. Okay, so flat inflation and therefore overall big substantial indexes like industrial output, like exports, like fixed investment, flat. 
Mm, okay. So, you know, what's the answer to that? Yeah. There, there was an article in the FT over the weekend, which has been commented on quite widely. It basically came under the headline, China's rise is reversing. It was an opinion piece by the chairman of Rockefeller International. But he basically said that China's share of the global economy rose nearly tenfold from below 2% in 1990 to over 18% in 2021. And he says now the reversal has begun. In 2022, China's share of the world economy shrank a bit, and now it's going to shrink more significantly uh, to about 17%. And he's basically claiming that, you know, China's rise is over. Although we should point out that when he does that, he uses... um, uninflation adjusted numbers so that that makes a big difference to how you calculate this but i'm wondering what 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 do you think about that uh, well first of all andrew what what are your thoughts on on that article i'll tell you what i think i i think not this particular piece i've read this particular piece and i don't want to comment into that because he's not around to reply these pieces that compare china first to united states or its share in the global economy i find them utterly irrelevant okay this business that within five years china is going to be the biggest economy after the united states so what in terms of per capita income, it's still, it is a developing country, okay? And it's not a kind of the things that will light up as a Christmas tree. The other part is is that its role in the global system has now reversed, meaning whatever that means, it's still growing at anything between 4 to 5%, okay? Mm-hmm. And that, that is quite, uh, quite important. And then uh, the obsession of uh, first past the post, and who is going to be the biggest one around is, is childish, basically. Mm. Okay. And it's it's as you and as you say, then we enter the dangerous territory because of course the Chinese numbers are all in renminbi, and then we all know, of course, that the renminbi exchange rate is manipulated. Da 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 da. Perhaps it is uh, it is uh, uh, under or overpriced, and that makes an enormous difference when you begin to look at the numbers. So it is it is interesting. Okay, but it is a dangerous territory to base any particular conclusions as to the to the future of the world. Okay, China still will stay amongst the four biggest economies in whichever way you you manage it, and whether it slipped to the third part or fourth part, really, even for the Chinese, should be relevant. Thank God, actually, she started saying, really, we're not in a race with the United States, mm. meaning also that we are going to overtake them. What, what do you think, Mich- Michelle? Uh, any any thoughts on on this article? It's been quite widely circulated, quite widely commented on, because of, partly because of that big banner headline: "China's rise is <laughs> reversing." But well, what do you think? That's a very catchy title, but um, I don't agree because if you look at um, a lot of the export market share for China in the uh, high tech products such as uh, con- consumer electronics. Um, I think there's still a lot of uh, catch up for China uh, to do. Um, say, for example, you know, Huawei are now uh, developing their own chips that uh, that uh, previously the people would not uh, have expected them to roll mm. out so quickly recently. Um, so it shows that actually China is still uh, developing very quickly on these high tech. Uh, high tech uh, chips front, so I think um, it may take uh, it may take some time, but I think China, uh, with so many um, talents, uh, R and D spending, and uh, well, government supports, I think uh, China could uh, get there eventually. So I think uh, the jury is still out. Um, and second point is uh, actually, and also uh, complementing that point is that if you look at the. Um, the the NEV exports uh, and solar exports in particular, 
China has done very well this year, and I'm sure you've seen headlines about uh, China being the uh, like, like overtaking Japan as the greatest as the as the big auto the exporter uh, in the world uh, this year. Mm. So uh, you have uh, good companies like BYD, uh, CATL, for example. So I think um, China's efforts to uh, develop high tech uh, high tech uh, products should not be undermined. And um, and second point is that. Um, I think if you look at uh, things like, uh, well, in terms of like global global orders, right? I mean, China is actually developing its own system, so they are now building the well big, big connections with the one belt one row areas. They are now the, inviting a lot of uh, Latin American countries to settle the trade in the RMB. So, so in terms of like setting the the global rules, I mean, it's like China. I think is probably developing its uh, its own system, extending its own influence. So. How do you measure that uh, in terms of the uh, the influence all over the country? So I think it's it's, it's probably uh, yeah it's, it's probably not uh, not uh, not a very uh, representative way to say that this uh, it's global influence is is declining. Mm. Also, I I I thought to me my understanding, but but you'll know better than than I do on, on an economic perspective. You don't really compare countries' GDPs on a nominal basis. You use purchasing power parity because that then reduces the currency exchange uh, effects and, and that actually more represents the, the living standards in different countries. And if you do it on PPP, you get a much different um, answer about China's share of um, GDP because, you know, you, the, the US has had very high inflation, uh, which China hasn't. It's raised interest rates, which China didn't. So it's sort of strengthened the, the US dollar. So it, that, that, the way it's done in that article to me seems rather misleading. But Michelle, you, you, you've got a better insight on that than I have, I'm sure. Yeah, definitely. The, it's right to measure it on a purchasing power parity basis. But I, I guess overall, the the property crisis that happened over the last few years only mean that China will take longer to get there. Mm. Okay. Um, Andrew, let me ask you about the Fed. We had the minutes uh, from the Fed's uh, from the Fed's last meeting, uh, which was held back in uh, October, at the end of October, um, seemed to show very little urgency to raise rates again, but at the same time, very little um, uh, appetite to go and cut them either, which is what you've been saying for, for several times on this show now. But what, do, what are your thoughts on what the minutes told us, if anything new? N- nothing, nothing, nothing changing, which is very good because we don't want to to have the press report at the end of the meeting and then uh, a month later we get uh, the minutes and they, they tell you something completely different. Okay, they actually said we're willing to stay on it and look what's happening to inflation and we're in no hurry to cut neither raise, which effectively they have it their way because like saying tomorrow it's very likely to rain, less likely not to rain and perhaps on average the temperature and everything else is going to remain the same as it was today, which <laughs> tells you precisely enough. So, yes, this is, this is not a critique. This is just a statement. Yeah, there's nothing new there. Okay. Mm. Good. How, how, if they wanted to cut, um, let's suppose they did feel like the time was to cut. First of all, they can't possibly say it at the moment, can they? Because of the impact it would have on the markets. But how do they get to the point from where they are now uh, to at some point in the future having to start cutting interest rates? Presumably, they've got to do a lot of preparation to get to that point for the, for the markets. Yeah. They, they will do this, for example, a classical thing we would say is that the development trend is, uh, is uh, let's say it is quite, uh, quite encouraging. However, we need to stress 
that we have to see that trend staying and developing mm. over the next X time period. So you're already giving a sign that something is happening, but you want this to happen longer. They haven't said that about inflation. Inflation has been coming down in the States, okay, but it has not coming down every month by a few basis points for six months to say, yeah, we've got a trend here that's coming down. So the preparation will be in terms of changing the tenor uh, of in which they, they are actually saying things. Mm -hmm. But then good luck to them because, of course, once you begin into playing with manipulating expectations, it's a, it's a, it's a, it's a terribly awkward thing to do. Just give me one more second because I've got long memories of Greenspan, poor Greenspan, trying to manipulate expectations. And it was famously that the markets, if Greenspan said, oh, it's a graph voice, well, inflation. <clears throat> see, see, he cleared his throat after he said inflation. Okay, so clearly he's not happy with it. It, be it became absurd. It became Mickey Mouse. So I think Powell might have taken uh, a page out of that, and he's uh, uh, much more comfortable. I mean, so it's much more careful. I'm sorry, it's much more comfortable. Oh, yes. So the answer is no, nothing new. And yes, what else they're going to tell us? And no, they're not going to say, next meeting, we're going to cut. Wait for it. <laughs> uh, Michelle, what, what, did we learn anything new from the, these minutes? Um, I don't think there's a lot of um, signals out there. Um, but I feel that uh, recently, lo looking at the market reactions, uh, my sense is that the the market seems to be quite uh, like, say, for example, you look at the market pricing, they're expecting the 100 basis point cuts next year, which mm. if you look at the recent economic data, I don't seem to get a sense of the things deteriorating very quickly in the in the U.S. to support that. I think um, people sort of like take the sign that, yes, maybe the, the CPI is now surprising more to the downside. Probably the inflation pressure is not as severe as we are thinking. So now markets are taking more the aggressive stance on the rate cuts next year. But I just feel that the kind of, uh, first of all, it's... Um, it's not always a, it's a, it's a dynamic uh, function in the sense that if market is too uh, bullish about the rate cuts, then the yields going down, equity prices going up, this easing in the financial conditions actually make it much harder for the for the ha for the Fed to to cut. And uh, and also at, at the same time, I, the sense I have from investors is that um, there have been that we've been we've been the food for a lot of times uh, this year like everybody was saying yes us is going to have a recession since the end of last year but it hasn't really materialized so in some sense i think uh, it's, it's probably something that is the more, more structural uh, that uh, that's happening in the u.s economy such as the retirement of the baby boomers that actually may may make uh, the economy more resilient and make the fed a bit harder to cut interest rates uh, so aggressively mm. so i think uh, um, the recent reactions, like look at the equity prices and also the bond market, seems to be quite uh, bullish to me. Mm, I mean, the bond market is giving a different message, isn't it, to the to the Fed? I mean, the Fed is saying, you know, we're going to stay here for a long period of time. The bond market is saying, we don't believe you. If you look at that 100 basis points of cuts they're talking about starting in May. So I'm wondering what exactly is the message of the bond market? Is it maybe um, that uh, it's saying that the risk on inflation is no longer to the upside, it's actually to the downside, and that inflation could actually go and drop below the Fed's 2% target? 
Well, there could still be a lot of uh, uh, technicality. I think uh, if you look at the, the 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 development in November, you see it's like so so volatile, like going going up to five percent and then now coming down. So, um, so I think to some extent it could be driven by like technical flows of uh, of people uh, removing a position. So, I and to some extent, yeah, maybe the the market are being a bit complacent on the inflation side. Hmm. What, what do you think, Andrew? Do you think maybe um, you know the the policymakers have got it wrong? They're basically erring on the side of caution, saying the risk to inflation is actually to the upside, whereas actually maybe the market is saying the risk to inflation is to the downside. No, I'm af- I'm afraid I don't believe that. Uh, I'm not saying I don't believe it as to what inflation is likely to do, but Powell and his uh, his group having made the mistake of starting late, according to all market convictions. Okay, they don't want to repeat the same mistake in the sense of beginning to cut too early. Mm. So in the same way they started late, they don't want to, to start, they started late increasing, they don't want to start early cutting. And I suspect, I suspect, I have no idea, they may very well prefer to err a little bit on the side of caution rather than on the, on, on the other side. That's why the forecasting inflation is, is an utterly thankless task. Because whatever you do, uh, something else is likely to give and therefore either make the consequences of you hitting your target expensive or rather the consequences of not you hitting the target equally expensive. So, you know, damned if you do and damned if you don't. And then they get paid to do it. So, you know, I don't feel... Any any huge sympathy anyway. I'm a consultant. Somebody asks me, "Do I buy or do I sell?" And I say, "Go ahead and buy." And I, I get it wrong, then I pay the price for that. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. I, I'm not shedding too many tears for the Fed either. I have to say. Well, it's great to talk to you both. Thank you very much indeed for your thoughts uh, this morning. You heard there Andrew Ferris, who is the CEO of Econosis Advisory, Michelle Lam, who is Greater China Economist at Society General Corporate and Investment Banking. <laughs> I'm joined now by Gerard Barron, who is the CEO of The Metals Company. Good morning, Gerard. Peter, good morning. Great to be with you. Thank you very much for joining the program today and happy Thanksgiving Day as well. Um, Tell me, first of all, a little bit about The Metals Company. I know you're listed um, over in the US, but maybe you can describe a little bit about your business. Sure. So we're listed on the NASDAQ. TMC is the ticker. And we're focused on developing a new asset class in the form of ocean metals, So a bit of background, 70% of our planet is ocean. And what hasn't been known until recently is that 70% of the known reserves of nickel and cobalt and manganese lie in this one deposit in the Pacific Ocean, about a thousand miles off the coast of Mexico. And they're, they're in the form of these polymetallic nodules. And if I was with you, I'd hand you one. They're about the size of a potato and they lie unattached on the ocean floor in a part of the planet that's known as the abyssal plains. So it's an area where we measure the amount of life in grams per square meter. It's about 4,200 meters below sea level. And there's around 10 grams of life there per square meter. And these nodules happen to contain the metals that we are going to need billions of tons of as we transition away from fossil fuels, and they are nickel and copper and cobalt and manganese. And so for the last 12 years, 
we've been developing our, our license areas. Our licenses are granted to us by the International Seabed Authority, an organization made up of 168 countries plus the European Union. And we're preparing to lodge a very exciting time for us to lodge our application to move from the exploration phase into the exploitation phase, which means that we'll then be able to pick up these nodules, turn them into battery metals and sell them. Now, the, these metals are obviously very important, aren't they? Because there's a lot of demand for them at the moment, given the, the expansion of electric vehicles. And these are metals that are used in the batteries in particular, I believe, uh, uh, for electric vehicles. So a huge amount of demand at the moment and presumably limited supply. I think what the, the people haven't stopped to think about is, you know, the, the notion of transitioning away from fossil fuels is an obvious one because of global warming. You know, we need to reduce CO2 emissions. But we've got to think about what does that mean? Because we're going to need to build billions of batteries. And of course, the question is, where do those battery materials come from? What's the impact on the environment and the humans? And so I think we have to look through a lens of saying, where can we get a supply of these important battery metals with the lightest planetary and human touch? And, you know, that's an area that we've now spent hundreds of millions of dollars studying. And, of course, nickel is where about half of our economics come from. And 100% of the growth in nickel supply comes from rainforest nickel. And that mm. means you've got to remove the rainforest and all of the biodiversity. You've got to remove the indigenous communities that live amongst them to be able to dig up the, the dirt that contains the nickel material. And that's only the beginning of the impacts because you've then got to process it, which generates waste and tailings. So that's one issue, the environmental side and the human side. And then the other is geopolitics. So the world has woken up to the fact that China dominates the battery supply chain and, and China are OPEC when it comes to battery metals. And that's because they're very forward looking. They've invested ahead of the curve. And the West, I'll call them the sleepy West, are waking up to that now. Mm -hmm. And so for for decades we've thought we can out we've out yeah, for decades we've thought we can outsource this. The, to the developing world. But of course, that means we've outsourced it to China, really. So I, I know that this this extracting these metals from the land, and particularly eco-sensitive areas, can be environmentally very damaging. But the, the seabed itself contains a lot of um, unique um, sort of environment, doesn't it? So it, it could be quite damaging uh, to go around drilling on the seabed um, as well. So presumably a lot of care needs to be taken because of just of the valuable sea life that exists on the, on the, on the corals that, that exist on the seabed. Well... That's where we need to be very deliberate in our communication because there are various types of metals in the ocean. There are seafloor sulfides, there are um, cobalt crusts, but polymetallic nodules are a spe specific and special use case because of where they sit. They sit in the abyssal plain. Now, about 40% of our entire planet is categorized as the abyssal plains. So it's the most common area on our planet. And so unlike the top 200 meters of our ocean where most of the life exists, we're talking about more than 4,000 meters below sea level. Mm. So there is no light. There are no plants, like zero plants. 
And as I mentioned before, there's around 10 grams of fauna per square meter. And most of that, like 80% of that, is bacteria living amongst the sediment. And so, you know, I have this first principles approach that says, surely we should carry out extractive industries in parts of the planet where there is the least life, not the most life. Mm-hmm. And the abyssal plains, a thousand miles off the coast of Mexico and the Pacific Ocean, is the perfect place to locate a very large and very abundant resource. And of course, those environmental impacts are important. Just because there's not much life doesn't mean it's not important. And so we've been studying that. In fact, we're out there um, revisiting our license area because last year in 2022, we spent six months at sea trialing our collector system, trialing the robots that will crawl along the ocean floor, picking up these rocks. And we had a we had another vessel out there at the time uh, studying the impacts both before, during, and after. So we've gone back now, 12 months after the event, so we can study the recovery rates and see what's happened to the area. And so we're really contributing to the knowledge bank of the deep ocean because you know, it's expensive to do this. Mm. And of course, companies need to be able to to justify why they're doing it. And we need to have an industry that's also well-regulated such that we prepare all of these results and then we submit them to a regulator who will then assess our application and will then study our environmental impact assessment, which is, of course, just one pillar of what will be a very extensive application when we lodge it next year. And is there a regulator in place to, to do that? Is is there sort of a regulator for you know, the sorts of things that you can do on the seabed? Yes, there is. And if we cast our mind back 50 years, this industry was getting started. So Lockheed Martin, BP, Shell, Mitsubishi, Sumitomo were all building systems to pick up these very same rocks. But the industry didn't go forward because the United Nations stepped in and stopped them because 50 years ago, the world had not agreed who owned the oceans. Where do your borders begin and end? That was finally reconciled when UNCLOS was put in place in 1982 and then further amended in 1994 and the International Seabed Authority was established. And it's a regulator that has a structure a little bit like the United Nations. It has a, a secretariat to run it. It's based in Kingston, Jamaica. It has a assembly, which is made up of 168 countries. It then has a, a council made up of 36 member states and then a legal and technical commission. And so it's really a very well-established organization that is there to represent all of the nations of the world and to put in place the exploration and exploitation regulations to allow this industry to move forward in a careful way. And if we think about mining and oil and gas, those industries started before there were any regulations. And so it's a very unique opportunity here that we're going to have this industry regulated from the very beginning. And, you know, we applaud that. We're happy to be part of it. We are driving the industry forward, of course. Uh, but it's an exciting opportunity, which, of course, when we pick up these metals and or rocks and turn them into metals, we're going to put them into a system. And those atoms, those metals are going to stay there for centuries mm. because we're moving towards circularity. 
and batteries in particular will be heavily recycled. And But what we need to do is we need to build up the, the metal commons that we can then share for future generations and centuries into the future. And um, what are the economics of this? I imagine this is a, a very complicated way of, of, you know, trying to extract these metals. It's quite difficult. You mentioned robots earlier, so I presume you have robots roaming around the seabed to try and do this. But this sounds to me very mm. expensive. <laughs> well, you've got to understand the mining and oil and gas industry to understand what is expensive. And, you know, yes, operating in the deep ocean has some challenges. And the way we approached that was we brought in partners who could help us address those challenges. And so our our biggest investor is a company called Allseas, um, a company based in um, the Netherlands. And for 37 years, they've been leading the industry in laying pipe in the deep ocean for the oil and gas industry. Mm. And so they bring operational experience that allows us to take these challenges head on. And and that's why our, our pilot trials last year was such a huge success because our partner also has engineered and built that system. And so, but when you think about it, okay, it's 4,000 meters below sea level, but we're going through water. Now on land, of course, you're having to imagine this resource and then you have to build all the infrastructure around it. And that can take decades to permit, but can also take many, many years and billions of dollars to build the infrastructure around land-based ore bodies. We don't have that restriction. We can convert a vessel, sail it on out there, and we can be in commercial production in a week. Mm. And of course, we increase production by putting another boat there. Now, that's where this resource also affords tremendous flexibility because we pick up the rocks, they go into our production vessel, and then they get transferred to a transporter. And that transport vessel can sail to North America, it can sail to Europe, Mm. or it can sail to Asia, where I am at the moment. And so you can really make some choices, and you can also scale much more effectively and much quicker And there is a lot of existing built and permitted infrastructure onshore where we can process our nodules. And that's one of the best economic benefits of this project, that we don't have to go out and build billions of dollars of processing. We don't have to build deep water water, um, ports and railways and roads and power supplies. So that's one of the great economic advantages. And so, but when it comes to cost, to be very specific, one of the things that has the most important uh, impacts on cost is the high grade. It's a bit like location, location for property. Grade is what is king when it comes to these nodules. And, and, you know, the the potato-sized nodule that I'd hand to you, we turn all of that into saleable material. And the grade of that material is up to orders of magnitude higher than some of the large ore bodies that are being developed on land Mm -hmm. right at the moment. And so it means the revenue we get per ton is much higher. Is it a little bit more expensive than digging up a nickel laterite? Uh, In the early stages, it will be marginally more. But as we build scale, it will be competitive with those costs. But the exciting thing is the lower impact. Mm. That is what I find a very motivating factor on this story. 
So it sounds a very exciting uh, development and a very exciting way to meet what's going to be an important source of, of demand going uh, going forward, particularly as you know the electric vehicle industry um, develops and grows very rapidly, as, as we're seeing at the moment. Gerald, thank you very much for telling yes. us about that. That's, uh, that's very interesting. And good luck with that uh, project. That's Gerard Bowen, who is the CEO of The Metals Company. You're listening you. to Peter Lewis's Money Talk. Money Talk. Thank you for listening to Money Talk this morning. You can find more business and finance information from around Asia in my daily newsletter, which is at peterlewismoneytalk.substack.com. On tomorrow's program, I'm joined by Francis Lund, the CEO of Geo Securities, and the Shah, Asia Chief Economist at BBVA. With a view from Australia is Toby Lawson, the CEO of Staten Partners. Bye for now. Money Talk.